0: All right. Um, So today we're, it's not gonna be me so much talking as much as us thinking about something for ourselves. Um, And what we're talking about today only scratches the surface of what could even just be a dissertation proposal, let alone a dissertation. Um, But it's something I want you really to consider for yourselves as we continue to move forward through the unorthodox conversations that we have. Um, and really, it's it's about developing your own hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is simply a fancy word for how somebody interprets ancient texts. Um, and so when you look at like the hermeneutics of our larger church, the hermeneutics is historical criticism. That's how we interpret text. Um, When I was in seminary, though, one of the very last classes we had to take was called um, Constructive Theology. And it was a class that went over theologies—I mean, most of seminary was the theologies of, like, straight white people. Uh, Constructive Theology immersed us in um, black theology, native theology, queer theology, really tried to look at other theologies that a lot of mainline churches do not encounter— All so that at the very end, we had to write like a 30-page paper that developed our own personal theology. And in a sense, that's kind of what I want us to explore today. I want you to think not so much about your theology today, but I want you to think of like how you would go to any kind of an ancient text and make sure you're reading it in a way that's valuable, um, relevant, and... Possibly helps you live a more meaningful life, whatever that means. So, I mean, I'm going to definitely be using the Bible, and I'm going to be using the Bible because we have the Hebrew Bible, so the texts of Jewish people, and the New Testament, which together is the Christian Bible, so it's not just from Christianity, it's using Judaism as well. Um, But, like, if you think of our own Constitution, you know, 200 years old, not an ancient text, but definitely an older text, you could think of the same Hermeneutic way of approaching something like the Constitution or any other ancient text that might bear uh, Meaning in your life in some way Does that make sense? Yeah, okay um, And so I want to start with my presentation. That's what all these words are. And so all the words today. These are just these are just um, Verses I pulled from the Bible kind of to make a point more than anything. You don't feel like you have to read them I'm gonna read them out loud um, But it's really to drive the point about some stuff. So first there is the conception that what we are supposed to do if we're going to call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, we just simply read the Bible and do what it says, right? Even, uh, I think, Calvary Chapel is probably based on, the, on the, the idea that, like, any person can just read the Bible and be inspired by the Holy Spirit by that text, and that's, that would be, like, their hermeneutic approach to the Bible, You just read it, and you're inspired by it, and you create theology or ways to live your life by it. Um, This is why that doesn't work, though, okay? And this is why anyone with that approach or anyone with, like, a literalist approach to the Bible is also making their own hermeneutic decisions. They're, They're choosing their own way to interpret the Bible. So this is Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17. When a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay an amount equal to the bride price for virgins. So, you cannot take this literally, and you cannot just simply be inspired, because what this is saying is that women are property. Women have a value based on being a virgin or not. Uh, whether they were married and their their um, husband died. If they were married and their husband divorced them, their value plummets. That's because women were property in antiquity. Now, we live in a society today where women are not property. Although, never mind. Um, but any person who comes from a, a literalist perspective, if that's their hermeneutic, uh, lens is, is literalism, they're going to negate this text. They're going to say that, that this is not the value system that they live by, at least in this country, any longer. Women are not property anymore. That's a good thing. And everybody from the right side of the spectrum to the left side of the spectrum is probably going to agree on this one. Women are not property. Um, and I couple this with Corinthians 7 verses 2 to 4. Uh, But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So Exodus' is Old Testament text, Hebrew text, this is not something from just the Jewish Bible. It's something that's also in the Christian Bible. Women are property.
1: My sister has a like a etiquette book from like the 1930s, and it does, or maybe a little bit later, and it does say that if a man goes out into the world and his clothes are rumpled, it's not his fault, but it reflects poorly on what the wife is able to do. And so he, her husband, is also somebody who's like a nature nerd and is like covered in dirt all the time. Yeah. He jokes and makes fun of the thing. <laughs> it's all her fault. But. Um, so so these that's a good one. So these first four examples
0: are um, These are texts where even, like, biblical literalists are going to disagree with them, okay? Um, Number three here, Leviticus 25, verses 44 to 46. Uh, As for the male and female slaves whom you may have, it is from the nations around you that you may acquire male and female slaves. You may also acquire them from among the aliens residing with you and from their families that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may keep them as a possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property. These you may treat as slaves, but as for your fellow Israelites, no one shall rule over the other with harshness. So here we have slavery, right? And not just slavery, but like, it says quite explicitly, you can treat your slave however you want to. As long as they're not an Israelite slave, indentured servitude, which was a thing, um, Israelite indentured slaves, you have to treat with kindness and compassion. Your other slaves from other nations, uh, you can treat them however you want. So right there, slavery. No no biblical literalist in in this country is going to look at that and say, yeah, we should follow that literally. Um, And again, Old Testament, New Testament, Ephesians 6, 5-8, which Paul did not write this, but it's under his name. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. Um, so this was a big one used in America during during our times of slavery, um, not only to justify, but to try to tell uh, slaves, like, hey, if you're good, like you're going to reap rewards later on, so blah, blah, blah. So here's four examples where um, a, a literalist hermeneutics just simply falls apart. And, and so if you ever approach anyone who says the Bible needs to be interpreted literally, keep this handout, pull it out, read it to them, okay. ask them if they believe in this, if we believe that we should do this today. Thank
2: you.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, because they will say no, and then they will have no reason to justify why they say no. Okay. So examples of, of being used today where we just say, people still say today, we just do what the Bible says. So Genesis 2, 21 to 24, I actually preached on this today at the 9:30 service. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man and made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This it, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called a woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his life, and they become one flesh. Uh, back in, um, God, what was it, 2000? I'm not going to give a damn, I'm butcher um, When Prop 8 was a, a thing we were voting on, um, Rick Warren made a video. Uh, Rick Warren, who was the pastor of Saubeck, uh Church, the largest church in California, uh, made a video encouraging people to vote yes on eight, um, and he uses this text right here as justification for it. And and, and his justification and others is that um, marriage is between one man and one woman because that's just simply what the Bible says. I mean, it doesn't take into consideration that, one, women were property, as, as we see above. Two, that men were allowed to be in polygamous relationships throughout all of the Bible, um, But but here you go, you have this this large pastor making this justification because that's just simply what the Bible says. So you you see that kind of reasoning still used today. Um, This one's from 1 Timothy 2, 12-15. Paul also did not write this one. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Oh, man. Anybody feel like they need a shower? <laughs> um, again, still used today. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Nadia Holtz-Weber, uh, Lutheran pastor, really uh, prolific, cool woman, um, talks about being in Sunday school and, and voicing her opinion in Sunday school at a very young age and having this quoted back at her, that she's supposed to just be quiet, Mm. keep her opinion to herself, and this is the place of of a woman in church. She goes on to uh, stand-up comedy. She gets into uh, alcohol and drugs and and has her own recovery story with that, um, but then becomes a pastor in the ELCA Lutheran Church, and she talks about this in her book, Pastrix, And she is just an incredible voice on uh, feminism and um, uh, created a really wonderful church, especially for marginalized and and queer folks in Denver. Um, But every time I read First Timothy, I just think of her. Um, And then finally, on the back here, examples of neglect by those who use the same uh, hermeneutical approach. So so this is kind of the flip side of this. So people who, who would take like a literalist approach um, who would uh, immediately have a problem with these two texts right here, right? So De- Deuteronomy 15, verses one to two. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts, and in this is the manner of remission, every creditor shall omit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it from a neighbor who is a member of the community Remission has been proclaimed. So, it's that that is saying is that uh, amongst either Jewish communities when this was written or Christian communities today, uh, you hear a lot of people say that this is a Christian nation. If you ever hear anyone say this is a Christian nation, this is a good one to pull out of your pocket or a purse or whatever and, and say to them, "Well, then should we do this?" This is saying that no Christian should hold on to debts from another Christian. So if anyone owes you a debt, or if you owe a lender a debt, anything, at the seventh year, it should just be completely wiped away. Period. Okay? That's what that's saying. Second one, Acts 2, 32, and 34, to 35. Now the whole group of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need.
3: What kind of socialist? Right? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: And so I really just wanted to highlight these verses primarily to show that any kind of a literalist interpretation of the Bible, these are just a few examples, but there's many more, it just simply falls apart. It's to show that no matter what approach anyone takes to the Bible today, they are bringing their own methods of interpreting that Bible with them. No matter what, it might be their values, it might be ideology, it might be the way that they interpret ancient texts, such as with historical criticism. But nobody just simply reads the Bible at face value and does what it says. Even those that do, as you see here, will negate certain texts for whatever reason. Um, So our kind of conversation, our task today, is I want you to think about how you would interpret the Bible. So for me, I I went to seminary. I've got a master's degree in Christian divinity. I had to learn uh, Koine Greek and Hebrew, and I had to learn like just an insane amount of, of history uh, of both the ancient Near East and um, and, and Judea and Galilee and Palestine etc. Like, I bring all of that when I read the Bible, when I interpret the Bible. You all didn't go to seminary. Taylor went to seminary for a little bit, never mind. Most of you didn't go to seminary. Um, and so you don't have the ability to come with that depth of knowledge that I do. So how, how would any of us approach the Bible? Then? Um, and so that's our first question. Like, What do you think your hermeneutical model is, or a better way to say that is, is how, how do you interpret the Bible? You know, I, I imagine anyone who would be reading the Bible in this room is probably reading an English translation of it. Um, how do you know that you're being authentic to the text, to yourself, to um, the Greek and the Hebrew? Um, how, I don't want to jump ahead yeah I'll be right there for now mm-hmm. so think about that for a second and it's not a rhetorical question I'm very curious like how how do you approach the Bible
1: um, one of the things that I liked when I was coming to the 930 service and what I had sort of been looking for when I was uh, coming into a church setting is I have no experience a very limited experience reading or interpreting the Bible. Um, and I liked your services because it, I, like, I like the message that you were, you were interpreting it for us. So I think that like a church service is how uh, I interpret the Bible. I take somebody else's interpretation
0: that's telling me. And how do you know, and I've actually said this in the 930 service before to a larger congregation. I've told them, like, I can make the Bible say whatever I want to. And, you know, I say that you, you know, the church, the congregation puts a lot of trust in me to, right. to and do so it. That's, I right. mean, that's
1: what I was, hit. that's sort of what I was looking for as a person that's interpreting the Bible in a way that I liked it being interpreted. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, you fit
0: that, so yeah, I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> we might come back to that. Um,
1: but yeah, like, completely trusting that's what somebody else is saying that it says. Yeah, like,
0: but I think, I think that the kernel of that is that you uh, you are, to a degree, regularly <laughs> involved with someone who does have a larger knowledge of it to help kind of sift through that. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one. I, I, I didn't think of that. It's good. What else? Yes, Lauren.
4: Um, I don't really read the Bible, but I think of it more as just stories. anything literal or perhaps even real yeah I actually I like that too
0: um, so it's like the opposite of a literalist approach
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: mm, which is good um, I once preached a Christmas Eve sermon where I said what if we treated the story of Jesus birth as a myth do you think maybe we could understand it better that was a like whole awesome. Christmas Eve that was sermon big. And, and and after it was over, this guy walks up to me and holds out his hand and I shake it. He pulls me in closer. And he says, "The story's real." <laughs> <laughs> and he let go of my hand and walked away. <laughs> um, but, but like from that, like what if what if you just you take the opposite of a literalist approach? What happens when you remove literalism from an ancient text? That's also not a rhetorical question. Think about that for a second. If you remove literalism, like, the point is not to, to convey a literal story, what is exposed in that text that maybe you can garner?
5: Well, I mean, you learn values that it's trying to teach. Like, I mean, nobody takes Aesop's fables, <laughs> literally, you know, like, but they teach they a lesson or, you know, what was, what is this fable trying to say? Yeah. You know,
0: did our our uh, our conversation on creation a few weeks ago, and we talked about how um, the 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 Hebrew creation story, if if it's not a literal story, and you view it uh, alongside the other creation stories of that time, what are the lessons that you could pull out of it? And what is that that creation is good that uh, human beings are divine like that's the stuff that you see when you pull literalism away from it and so that's a I really like that.
2: Liam. I really like that too. I think that it goes from me having an aversion to it to me being intrigued by it and really starting to lean in like oh there's something there there's something that I can catch there.
0: Yeah. When I think of, like, the story of Jesus, which so many people come to as as literally true, and I'm not saying that it's not literally true, but I'm just saying uh, literalism was not a concept in antiquity. Nobody approached stories in antiquity of, like, I have to convey this literal story to somebody else. Stories in antiquity always, no matter what, had bigger meanings to them because people couldn't separate myth from literalism in this time. They all kind of lived together. And so, like the story of Jesus' birth was told in a time when the story of Caesar Augustus' birth story was being told, and Caesar Augustus' birth story was that his his mother was a very wealthy Roman uh, niece of Julius Caesar. Uh, a snake, Jupiter, visited her as a snake, and the story just says he came under her, and when he departed the next morning, she woke up and she had a snake birthmark on her, and she was pregnant. So that story was being told throughout all of the Roman Empire leading up to the story about Mary becoming pregnant. And so again, the story of Jesus' birth, when put up against the story of Caesar Augustus' birth, there's a reason those two stories are being told at the same time. And if you remove literalism away from the story of Jesus' birth, which a lot of people really emphasize, you can then start to see the values of those two stories being told side by side with each other. Um, and I like that. Maybe maybe people then lean into it a little bit more. Uh, maybe people see uh, Jesus' like liberation and radical inclusivity and love for all people. Like, maybe they start to see that more. <laughs> My sister's English class in her senior year, and I didn't have the same
1: one, but I heard her talking about it, is that they had to study the Bible because they were going to see similar stories in like other literature. So that um, is also how I kind of see the Bible. It's just being like, where can we see it in other stories, and then we can also learn messages from those stories that are trying to like mimic
0: biblical stories. Who did this?
1: Well, my sister in her AP English class, a senior of high school.
0: Were the other stories like stories that were written after?
1: Yeah. So they they spent the first like. I don't know, a quarter of the year studying the Bible and learning Bible stories. And then after that, then they studied, I don't know what stories they were reading, but stuff yeah, that came after that's like English literature class.
0: So she's not like telling them stories of like, oh, this Genesis story actually comes from this Babylonian story. No, it's, it's looking Babylonian. at like stuff like that, right, that comes okay. afterwards. So she didn't get in trouble it. is what I'm
1: saying. Right. Okay. But also her <laughs> teacher was leading the class that way. OK. So the teacher didn't get in trouble either, but just saying like, hey, look, this Bible influences people that came after it, and yeah, you're like authors afterwards. Wow. Imagine the
0: other direction on that one. Like, cool. That's cool. So I'm going to say this because no one else has brought it up yet. But like, I'm going to use this model of like uh, a group of people sitting around a circle reading an uh, English translation of the Bible. They read a passage, and then somebody says, "What does that mean to you?" So what? Whoever answers that question, what it means to them, what are they bringing to that answer?
3: All their baggage. All their, baggage. All their
5: baggage. More than
0: that. That's good. What okay. else?
1: Other people's interpretations uh, that they've heard
0: their own value system, mm-hmm. right? Uh,
6: 1915, um
0: why it became the theology for evangelical churches, but then it became the groundwork because evangelical churches captured media use so prolifically and better than other, like, mainline Protestants or other church groups that they started pushing this out to mainstream society, even non-church people, and so it created an idea the Bible. We're just not going to accept this anymore. Um, or, or we hear Jesus say, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, is that something that we feel is essential?
4: It's something, yeah, we definitely need that. So how do you know what to cast out
0: and what to hold
3: on to? What I was taught, I went to Bible college and what I was taught was if it's not central to the gospel than those things, women being property, um, being able to own slaves, those were cultural at the time. And it was uh, the, the way of, of not really allowing it, but uh, just kind of managing what was part of the culture and uh, so those things are no longer cultural, so those fall away. And if it is directly related to um, the the DBR, the death burial resurrection, then that stays, and everything else can be seen as culturally insignificant.
0: So, so I hear two things: there are one that there's a value shift from then to now, mm-hmm. right? So we have to take that into consideration. The second thing is that. It To come through, not just the gospel, you said the gospel, I'm sure they said the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. But for them it was the DDR, the death, burial, and resurrection. So the gospel was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. I was thinking, actually, I want some more.
1: But that would be looking at it as if it was one author writing the entire thing. Because right. uh, I'm thinking about <laughs> in sixth grade literature, we're starting to look into themes and looking for evidence that supports it from throughout the whole book. Um, what is the central message? How do each of these
5: different pieces um, show that central message? That is, that is an essential part of evangelism the idea that it is one continuous revelation from Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's all one central message to there, but then they, I, I don't know, they still throw out things they don't like. like don't, I've never seen any one-eyed Christians or anything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there and yeah, yeah. more yeah
4: I think, too, like, if I'm reading this as stories, like, I don't necessarily feel the need to reject or refuse or accept any of it. So what I would take from it instead is, like, what sort of lessons does this, you know, give me of, like, what to do or kind of what not to do or what's at play here, like what power structures are at play or what, um, things like that. So I, I don't feel a need to like reject or accept it. Yeah. It just is more like, what is this trying to teach me? Yeah. Um, and how, and then
0: how would you approach something like that in a valuable way that So even this space, like, what is it about? Like, how do you trust that you're still that, like, if you're doing the right thing? Maybe right not
1: the right word, but actually, that's a, that's a really interesting point because I was talking about this um, with some of my friends and was talking about the liberation theology and all the things that am like trying to encompass everything that we have talked about and telling them, and they seemed very skeptical of what I was saying or like. And I was so excited to talk about it that I felt as, and maybe they weren't skeptical at all, but I read it as skeptical, That it was like, oh my gosh, they think that I'm part of a cult. <laughs> like, this is I'm like, oh my gosh, how? And I even said, like, I haven't had time to do like my research in it. I'm just thinking, you know, Pastor Chris's word at face value, and it seems to make sense, and I'm just, like, going along with what he's saying, and he's saying all of these
2: things. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, I think what I'm hearing is that we it's something around I can't even quite get the words but I'm, I'm hearing really that we're we're looking for permission we're looking for this permission to think our thoughts and feel our feelings and live our day and it's like you know, the interpretation of the Bible is either going to grant us that permission or deny it, you know, and it's, I don't know, there's some negotiation happening there with the Bible, in our psyche, in in the way we live our lives, in the way we express ourselves, in in the way we are. Um, There's some, like, relationship there that's, for me, actually, it's kind of, it's kind of curious. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's also that, like, I, since I don't know very much about the Bible or, like, biblical stories, and then I also don't know very much about the, the context that it was written in or, like, how it can be interpreted, like, I'm coming to this as, like, almost like a, a lecture series that we're doing, and with a discussion based, to, like, a, like, a college-level course that's academic of, like, what is this and then, with a slight moral twist of like, how can you then take these moral readings that we've been doing or these moral interpretations and apply it to your life? Um, and so it's new information and it's engaging and it's really fascinating and it's not something that comes up very often in our culture. It's, uh, that's part of what brings me coming back. And I, I guess
5: yeah. in, so what I'm getting at is I wonder how much of
0: your own current value system the way you approach this and the Bible if you read it. I uh, <coughs> you both as an example. I think, I think you saw me speak at the Unity Rally mm-hmm. and then I and you started following me on Instagram and so I imagine both what I said at that Unity Rally and what you saw on Instagram connected with something that you both already feel and thought maybe this is a space where we can come and get in the area of like, faith or spirituality or religion that we in. Is that a fair mm-hmm. solution? Yeah. So there's a value system there. Um, I mean, I'm going to totally call out the swings and the stalls too because you mm-hmm. guys were the ones that kind of just popped in one day.
2: <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> <Perk>. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, did uh, we? We first. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so,
5: We've
3: been friends
2: we, were, we, were, we
3: became good friends through our daycare um, and our boys and so I think we were having like a mutual discussion of uh, I had been dragging him to another church in the valley because I needed something and uh, through talks with Evie discovered that they also had gone to that church and had also been like this is not what we want to do anymore and um uh just in talks with them started just looking for something that wasn't
5: Mm -hmm. you come to a Christmas Eve. That's
3: what it was. That's what it was. They came to Christmas Eve service and it resonated with them. And then Matt we we looked it up and we
5: came. Well we came at a Came to the 11th, which I think we tried to come one week and it wasn't happening. <laughs> so we came back the next week and then I, I walked in thinking there's going to be like a service, but then it wasn't. <laughs> like he was
3: sold good. when there was no singing. <laughs> this is the place for me. <laughs> yeah. and I
5: didn't have to listen to a praise band. 45 minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I don't know. Like, like uh, Karen was saying, it's just um, it's more like a academic seminar for me right now. Um, Cause I mean, I've kind of been, I've been deconstructing my faith for years. Was like, and and it kind of started in graduate school when I was um. Like I was writing my master's thesis on um, Holocaust survivors in England, um, and I was using their recorded testimonies from the Shoah Foundation, um, and I was saying like, okay, every single testimony, I'm like checking what the person said, I'm fact checking just to make sure, you know, okay, did they get this right? Did they miss the details? Did that happened? when so people were bringing back the things? Then I was like, okay, wait, why am I fact checking these Holocaust survivors talking about something that happened fifty years ago to them? Yeah, I'm taking completely literally this other book. Like I've taken it literally my whole life without really putting it to any scrutiny. Yeah. Um, and then that's when I decided I had to approach the Bible as I would approach any other ancient texts from that area. Like yeah. I'm not going to take the other Gilgamesh literature. Yeah. <laughs>
7: I believe everything you're saying because and they would like it.
8: fired us to-
0: I need to run outside, (laughs) keep someone out of traffic.